Hey guys, and welcome to Hunting Land, where we discuss all facets of hunting, wildlife, and habitat management, and the dynamics of land ownership. I'm Joe Baia, along with my buddy Clint Flowers. Welcome to this week's show. This week's show is brought to you by our newest sponsor, Bay County Armory. We had the owner, Sonny Vincent, on the show not too long ago to tell us how to choose the best AR for hunting. If you have not had a chance, I highly recommend you go back and listen to that if you're in the market for an AR-10 or an AR-15. But the guys over at BCA, they build firearms that suit your individual needs. They're built for the tasks you're going to tackle, whether it's hunting, defense, or something else altogether. Check them out at baycountyarmory.com or give them a call at 850-832-2238. Bay County Armory, purpose-built AR-10s and AR-15s. Let them guide you in designing the firearm of your dreams. Clint, I am excited about this week, man. We got a lot of ground to cover, and this is a topic that I think we could probably talk for hours and and hours on, but specifically what we're going to focus in today is on first-time land buyers. So what do you think, man? What was your your first land purchase? Ten acres. Tell me about it. It was a fixer-upper. You know, it was a track that was gently sloping on either side with a creek running in the middle no roads basically there was a woods road that dead ended into it and that was it so you really couldn't get into the property and i was was young and full of fire so i would you know would beat off through the woods and and take off and just start to um, envision all the road systems that i could put in there in these big food plots on this 10 acres that i just bought and, right <laughs> you know I, I quickly realized if i did everything that I had in my mind that, uh, there'd not be a tree left on it. All right. So I had to dial it back a little, but, um, uh, you know, I'd had a relationship with a good dozer operator that was, you know, really good at, at understanding my goals. And I went out there and flagged out roads and areas for food plots and things like that. We put in a couple and a couple good road systems and, you know, held it about a year, put it back out there and, and sold it and rolled into my next piece, which was 20 acres. And I've just kind of been building from there. You, so you made a little money on it and had some fun fixing it up, and uh, that's what it's all about right there. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot of mistakes we see folks making when it comes to buying their first piece. Not only that, I mean, really buying any piece. Some people, you know, make different mistakes at different stages in the, in the game. So today we're going to be talking with John Matulia. John's a lender and relationship manager for Alabama Ag Credit in the Montgomery, Alabama office. But John brings a unique perspective to the show because he's also a former land professional like us, and he specialized in the sale of, of large, large acreage rural land after earning his agricultural economics degree at Auburn University. So I'm looking forward to hearing what John has to say on the financing side of a first-time land purchase. So John, welcome to Hunting Land. Tell us a little bit about uh, Alabama Ag Credit and what you do there. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I'm excited to be on. Hopefully, a lot of a lot of folks know about Alabama Ag Credit, um, but we specialize in financing rural land and, and agriculture. And so, um, I specifically uh, am a lender. I focus heavily on on the real estate side of things, since that's where my expertise was. Um, but also doing cattle and row crop um, type loans. And hopefully we can talk more about these different things, but we're, we're a co-op. It's a really great opportunity for folks who are looking to buy land first time or you're really building on to, to get some great long-term financing. Well, John, of course, you're coming at this from the financing perspective. Uh, anytime we get 
you know, a financier on the show, we want to know about the current interest rate. So tell me a little bit of that, about that right now with, with rural land, what's the interest rate looking like? Here we are, February 24th, 2020. Rates are still really, really good. They're, they're down our, our 20 year rate, you know, it's going to be ranging anywhere from mid fours to, to high fours. And then, you know, a little bit over five as well, 15 year rate, you're going to kind of keep going down a little bit. So, kind of a, a solid average right around 5%. Um, and I'll, I'll go ahead and mention this while we're talking about rates. One of the differences between us and local banks or commercial banks is we offer a dividend or we call it a, a patronage. Um, and it's something that we do. We're a co-op um, and every every customer or borrower purchases stock. That stock allows them to, to vote for our board of directors. It also pays them back that, that patronage. So, over the past seven or eight years, it's been close to 1%. Specifically, past two years, it's, it's been 95 basis points. Um, we're really, really proud of that, and we would love, love to share more about that with, with um, interested borrowers. So in, in layman term, if you've got a 5% loan, then plus or minus, you've essentially got a, an effective 4% rate with the bank as long as the patronage rate stays around where it is now. Correct, and we, we actually send you a check in the mail, and so... For our first-time land buyers, half of them probably don't believe you, and so I always recommend whether it be talk to you, Clint, or or Joe, who are, who have you know had customers use us, talk to other customers and say, no, this this thing is real. They really send you a check in the mail. So yeah, that's correct. And let's just the rate was five effectively last year. Your rate was right around a four. So it's a it's a nice nice product. That's amazing. That's definitely something you don't get at your local bank or the big chain banks. I mean, it's uh. I've been with the people who didn't believe you. And <laughs> when they first hear that, I said, that doesn't make any sense. And uh, once they learn more about the bank structure and about the history there, then, you know, I've never heard anybody complain about it once they, especially when they get that check. John, you know, the focus of today is, is to make people aware of some of the mistakes that we see commonly uh, people making. And what we want to do obviously is hopefully educate folks and have them not make these same mistakes. So when it comes to, financing rural land. Talk about down payments a little bit. What kind of what kind of errors do you see people making either with their thought process before they learn the reality um, when it comes to down payments? Yeah, so I would start with everyone kind of thinks in a residential mortgage term. So um, whether that be interest rate, um, down payment, PMI, and all those different things, we're different in that regard. Rural land lending is a touch riskier if you can think about not making a payment. It's not going to be the roof over your head. It's going to be your land. Um, so 15% down to, to 25% down, depending on the size of the loan and, and different factors. But as a first-time buyer, you need to think at minimum 15 to 20% down. And that's, that's where you're going to be. There are opportunities if you already own land, we can use that as collateral. And then ba- basically, you're looking at 100% financing, but we're going to have to be at a loan to value of at minimum 85%. Um, Let me step you back a little bit. So you're talking about using, you know, if you currently own land, what about other real estate? So if a person like right now, you know, the real estate market's been climbing, climbing, climbing for several years now, there's a lot of people that have a lot of home equity. Are you able to use other pieces of collateralized real estate for down payments? So the collateral would have to match. And so 
timber property is considered ag property. It would have to be something like that. It would have to be ag property. However, uh, let's say you have a lot of equity in your home. You could use you can use a HELOC or some other some other opportunities with another bank, and you can finance the down payment. We would just have to uh, include that in our analysis. So that that's an opportunity as well to where I've seen a couple of folks that that have done that. Excellent. So tell me a little bit of the, the differences you mentioned that you're not loaning on residential properties. Let's talk about that a little bit with regards to rural land loans. What are the differences in in a bank like Alabama Ag Credit and being part of the farm credit system. Are y'all governed by a different set of rules? We are. We're a GSE and not to get into all those different details, but the simplest way to say it is we have to stay in our lane. And so we're not able to just kind of go out there and lend in any type of area we want to lend. We're really here to promote to agriculture and, and rural Alabama and really farm credit across the, across the nation. So to provide financing for those folks that have trouble getting it on 20 acres or 80 acres or 100 acres. Um, and I would say one caveat is we do do residential loans, but they're, they're rural home loans or barn dominiums. A lot of these things that you're seeing go up with, with many farms. And so we can do your primary residence. Um, it just has to fit, fit within farm credit. And fit within rural land. Uh, that that's right. Outside of the city limits, and there, you know, it'd be best to pick up the phone and call us and let's talk through it. But there are times where um, it's better to finance your house through us than it is through a traditional lender. You know, a lot of people want have ideas of what they're going to do with their land after they buy it, and that's something that I see pe- a mistake people making. Clint, I think you see the same thing is they get an idea that they're going to do one thing with their property that they may not be able to do. So it helped me understand what someone can do with their land. And let's, let's use timberland as the example. If it's collateralized, if they are financing a property, a, a piece of timberland, and they're maybe going to use it as a rec track, what are they able to do with that timber? Can they cut it? If they cut that timber, does that money have to go back to you guys? Yeah, so not in, not in every scenario. And, and back to your former question, the, the beauty of using us is you're going to pick up the phone and call your lender. So you'll pick up the phone, call me and say, hey, John, you know, I bought this track last year, 150 acres of timberland. I want to thin, you know, I got some mature pines and I want to thin this. And I'll pick up my phone, call my appraiser who's, who's looked at that track. We have in-house appraisers that, that do that. And we'll talk about where we are based upon our loan to value. And in a lot of scenarios, the thinning is going to improve the value of the property. Maybe it needed a thinning. So there's not a, a one shoe fits all. Um, oftentimes, we're not going to require any money down. Now, let's just say you're going to cut it pretty hard and and, and potentially clear cut some spots. And in, in that scenario, because you're removing value from that property, we are going to want to talk about how much we're going to need to take from those proceeds. But if you've got something that is really going to add to the value of the property, I mean, y'all will work with, with the landowners there to... Absolutely. A perfect example is, you know, mixed hardwood pine track that's never been touched. And really, a thinning or some select cut areas would really improve the property in that scenario, you're going to, you're going to make some money and not have to bring us any. Um, so every, every scenario is different. And another thing I see a mistake that uh, first time buyers are making is that they oftentimes are ruling out properties because it doesn't have a certain feature that they want. A good example is a pond. You know, a lot of times guys will come in and they say, look, I'm just not going to buy 
a property that does not have a water feature of some sort or, or this property doesn't have food plots. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to, not going to do that. But if I'm understanding you correctly, they've got the ability to come in and harvest trees in, in that scenario. And as long as they're using those dollars in a, in a manner that is uh, going to improve the property, there's a potential to use those proceeds to do that. It, they just need to speak to you first and, and obviously, you know, make sure of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and, and I would defer this to Clint, but just from my former experience of selling land is you're oftentimes not going to find that perfect track. But if you have someone of a vision, you can buy it and it takes some time to improvement, but you can go ahead and do those things. And an example with us is, we can even lend money on farm improvements, putting up fence, putting in roads, and we can put that money in what's called a funds held account and kind of make draws to you as you're improving on that property. So there, there's a ton of options as it comes to, you know, maybe not finding that turnkey track, but something that you want to work on and improve over a period of time. And when we're talking about value, I think it's important to point out that that's not always price relative, you know, from a buying standpoint. I mean, Joe and I've talked about this a lot that and John, I know you guys see it on the appraisal side is just because something is cheaper on a per acre basis, excuse me, does not mean that it's a better value. I mean, you've got those tracks out there that may be one's 2,000 an acre and one's 3,000 and one may be cheaper in the bare land value uh, than the other. So if the $3,000 an acre track has got $2,000 an acre in timber on it and you can affect that timber, that's $1,000 an acre in the land where the $2,000 an acre track may have $500 an acre in timber or improvements. So you're really paying $1,500 an acre in the land. And that land price at closing, you know, people don't understand that's something that you never change. That is your basis in that land. Everything else above that, especially timber or crops can be affected, harvested, you know, turned into a liquid form of some kind where that land value, that land price that you paid can't. So cheaper is not always better. Correct. I'd say that's one of the bigger mistakes I see with folks is, let's just use a a number, say it's $1,500 an acre, but it's 10-year-old region that's going to take forever to become anything, or you got a 2,500 acre track of some mature hardwoods that'll that'll become something. So they kind of look at the per acre price without really looking at what's what's going on on the property. Yeah, that's one of the biggest mistakes we see because people, they've gotten in such a habit of shopping online, you know, by price. And if they're not used to seeing something outside of this little, you know, plus or minus uh, 18 to $2,200 an acre range or whatever they're used to seeing on, on per acre values and land in their market, if they see something, some kind of outlier higher or lower, they make assumptions about it. And those assumptions can really come back to bite you. That's right. You know, that kind of brings me to another mistake I see a lot. And that's, this mindset that you've got to get as many acres as possible. There's people want more land and they always think they want more land. But I mean, you, you know, this, if you're a hunter, you know, if you're hunting a club right now, or uh, you're hunting a large tract right now, you know, there's probably 20% of that property that produces 80% of the wildlife sightings. And and it changes from year to year. So there could be 80 acres within 2000 that, if you just had that 80, you'd still kill just as many deer or turkeys or whatever it is that you're uh, wanting to go after. And it, it, it seems to be the same thing. It's always this more is better mentality, but what you've really got to look at the property and the productivity of that property. I see it a lot on my agriculture tracks. Folks, you know, they're looking at it 
we've got some tracks that are, are leasing. I've got a track right now that leases at $65 an acre and I've got a track right now that leases at 120 an acre. Moore's not better in that scenario. The, the landowner's getting, you know, double the rent on the other property. So half the land's just as valuable from that perspective. What do you, what do you see with regards to that, John? I mean, it, you know, talk about, do you see a lot of folks that really just have a mindset of they've got to have this number of acres or they're not going to be happy? Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with both of you guys. And I think the value is picking up the phone, calling you guys, calling the land brokers and saying, you know, what are your goals? Um, a lot of half of our folks are they don't, they don't own a gun. They just want to grow timber and have a different investment other than in, in the market. And so, you know, they're looking at it from one perspective. Other guys, I want as much acreage as I can. I'm a recreational type person. And so, so for us, it just depends on the person in the conversation. But and, I, and I've seen both of those. And I would just say when you're getting started, you really need to list out whether it be five to seven things, you know, what's most important to you and start working through through that list and that way the land agents know and the and and, and the banks know what, what you're wanting to do in keeping with that line of thinking what that brings me into the next mistake that that i think i see almost every time and that is that not understanding your financial picture before you start your your land search most people they may think that they're going to borrow a certain amount or they're going to spend a certain amount and so they start to look at tracks where they can, if they're going to spend $300,000, they want to get as much land as they possibly can. But one of the mistakes I see in that is that they're not getting approved before they start their land search. So tell me, tell me about that, uh, John, with you guys, can someone come in, talk to you and go ahead and get approved before they ever even make an offer on a track? Absolutely. And really, it's one of the first phone calls you should make because like you said, you don't even know what you're looking for if you don't do that. So they need to come in, tell us what they're interested in doing and, and we can gather the, the required information we need and kind of get started. Um, that way we can point them in the right direction. They know exactly where they're looking and then they're not missing out on off offers and, and, and getting that, that contract signed because they're waiting on us. And it is probably of all the mistakes folks make, one of the biggest. They'll call me, we'll talk through it, we'll talk about what they need to do. Well, we're not ready yet. And then all of a sudden they found they found that track they wanted and now they're trying to gather and fumble and get me everything they need and just it just takes too long. And then even worse is they get down the road and they're not they're not able to get the financing. So it's it's to me, we're one of the first phone calls you should make once you start thinking about taking this taking the next step and buying land. Clint, have you had an, had a, a scenario where you've had a buyer miss out on a property because they didn't have their financing in place before they started? Yeah, uh, especially in a if you ever get in a multiple offer situation where a seller's got to weigh, you know, one offer versus the next. I've seen people lose to a lower offer because they were paying cash or were pre-approved, where the other party, in you know, the financing party, was making a higher priced offer, but they hadn't gotten pre-approved. So they had to have a, you know, a, a two to four week contingency in there for financing. And the seller just said, you know, I'm going to take the bird in hand versus the, the hopeful in the bush. And, you know, so they lost it. And I've seen the same thing on my end. I mean, one particular track comes to mind. It was a property that we went and looked at and, and it was a, a beautiful track, had a bunch of good hardwood on it. 
some elevation and it was in Florida and you don't see those things all that much in Florida, but you know, it was undervalued from, for what the landowner was asking for the property. And it was exactly what uh, my buyer was looking for that they talked about looking, you know, that they were interested in buying. And I said, look, I, I don't run across tracks like this very often. You need to, if you're going to do something, you need to do something quickly. Cause I don't think it's going to stay on the market very long. And, and it was, we were there before pre-market, you know, it was, we had an opportunity to make an offer pre-market and he said, well, you know, I got to go home and talk to my, my family and we're going to get our stuff together and, and figure out what we can afford. And, and as we were driving out that day and closing the gate, the neighbor saw, saw my truck leaving and he called the landowner and made an offer on it that night and he missed out on that opportunity. So it's, it's very important for somebody to get approved before they start the process. I, I see that time and time again, and I can't recommend it enough. Well, and a lot of times people, they don't realize how much they can, again, people make assumptions that, that get them in trouble or help make them miss out on things. They don't realize that, you know, as cheap as money is today and, and as long as that Alabama Ag Credit can carry these fixed terms out, that they can afford more land than they thought they could. That's right. And, uh, you know, so they may be actually wasting a lot of time looking at tracks that are smaller in either acreage or features than they could really afford had they actually gone ahead and done some front-end due diligence with the bank. And I would even ask you guys or turn it back on you and, and, and not that anyone works any harder or not harder, but if you have a, a customer who said, Hey, look, I'm approved, call my lender, talk to them. I'm working on getting this done. You sure seem to be more willing to jump in a truck and, and drive them a couple hours to look at different tracks than the guy that's like, well, yeah, you know, I'm going to get that done. Again, assumptions, assumptions, what we run into all the time. And, and I try to have those conversations or listen for the you know, the, the so-called red flags that somebody hasn't quite gotten their ducks in a row yet before we go, you know, really waste their time, you know, as, as a real estate agent, our time's kind of fluid and free anyway, it seems most days, but I don't, I hate wasting somebody else's time. If it's something that I could have told them up front, wasn't going to work. So you got, you know, we run into people that think they're going to go in and cut enough timber off of it to make that down payment. And they don't understand how that that affects loan to value that you can't just do that these days that, you know, or if there's conservation easement deals, they think they're going to walk in there. If it's a big track or a big buyer with a lot of income that could use that, that they can do that and not affect LTV and, you know, have to either put more down or, you know, different things that come into play and they just don't understand. And, you know, if we ask the right questions and have those conversations, I mean, it helps them and, you know, make better and more informed decisions. And that's the way we try to start you know, as best we can. And I think too, you know, we see it a lot where like Clint was talking about somebody walks into a situation and they think that they can do something that they cannot do. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go in there and cut trees and that's going to be my down payment is, is one example. But I, I see the flip side of that too. I see folks that say, well, I can only afford X because I've got this much for a down payment. And they don't always look at the deal from a creative standpoint and say, you know, well, if we, what could we do? It, what could I do if I pre-sold some timber? Mm-hmm. What could I do if I came in and, and was able to improve the property and, 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 and do some things that make the property more valuable. And then I see, I see it too, a lot of times where, you know, we were talking about folks always looking for as much acreage as they can get, but in a lot of scenarios, they're not looking at larger tracks that they may be able to 
purchase and, and sell a portion off and then get into the size of the track that they wanted uh, and make a little money that way uh, and get down into where they need to be. So it's really just all about going and talking to a lender. If you're going to use financing, you got to just start there. Go talk to your lender and make sure that you understand all the options that are out there. Because I'm sure, John, for all these things that we've said, you know, that are not maybe not possibilities, there's probably an exception to the rule. I mean, you may be willing to do some things that generally are not done. Is that right? I mean, is it, that, you just got to look at every absolutely. person case dependent. Absolutely. And that's the best thing to do is pick up the phone and call us and talk to us. Even from the standpoint of interest rates, I gave you a 20-year fixed rate. Well, that your goals may be something totally different from that where I can shave off 35 basis points and, and maybe not fix it for the entire um, life of the loan. Or there's period lockouts. There's there's Springfield loans where it's level principal. So there's there's a lot of other options than just the whole standard 20% down 20 years. That's kind of what you always hear. And that's just not the case. And where I think we add value is we really want to listen, want to know what your goals are. And then of course, look at your financial situation. And we may be able to show, show you something that makes a whole lot more sense than just a 20 year fixed. Well, John, Clint, what I want to know from you guys, I haven't, I haven't personally dealt with this yet. So this is something that uh, it, it seems like it could go south in a hurry. I, I'd, I'd like to know your opinion. That's buying land as a group. So, Clint, what do you see? What's the what's the uh, what's the mistake guys are making? I mean, you know, they they go out with their buddy and they've they've got this idea they're going to invest in this piece of property or they're going to buy this dream piece of hunting land. It's their best friend. They know that they know that guy would never do them wrong. They don't plan for the worst. Again, this, that's these. I've said it several times already, but you you make assumptions and you know. My goal is is always, you know, hope for the best, plan for the worst. And, you know, I mentioned how I started with with land investments. You know, I'm now up to, I own over 1,200 acres personally, and I own five or 600 acres inside of a a group purchase with a small group. And I'm part owner in 8,000 acres with six other people. And I'm the minority owner in that. And so, you know, my rights are basically null and void from a voting standpoint. I have voting rights, but I, they mean nothing without, you know, having some buddies that are voting with me. So, you know, it's so I've experienced all of that from an ownership standpoint and from a broker standpoint. You know, when somebody dies suddenly, you know, or when people aren't getting along anymore or when, you know, uh, two of the six partners aren't able to cover their part of the capital call or the mortgage and, you know, how to handle that and, you know, things that come up that you don't think about when you're excited to go buy this land together and be buddies and do all the hunting and the fishing and getting the kids together and all that stuff. You don't think about the bad things that can happen uh, that you need to plan for and, and understanding that it's not necessarily just you buying that land together. I mean, it may be that way on paper as far as the bank's concerned, but your kids are going to have opinions. Your spouse is going to have opinions. Uh, all those things are going to come to be that could affect your enjoyment of that investment. And so you need to understand how to handle those, you know, and have, you know, my suggestion is to have, if you do this, you know, in an LLC is the way most people do this is have very clear and concise operating agreements that, that clearly define the what ifs, you know, so if it's, if it's more than two of you, let's say, you know, one of you can't make the mortgage, what happens is his stock, conveyed to the parties that have to cover him or is he held liable for a certain period of time 
to make up for that. Things like that, that, that can come up if, if one of the partners passes away suddenly, if his interests are willed to his heirs inside his estate, do they have voting rights or not? Things like that, that come up that you just have to be prepared for. And if you're not, then you could be in a bad position that took a really great investment that you loved and something that makes your life absolutely miserable uh, and you could lose money on as well. John, do you guys loan to LLCs if they're, you know, trying to do something like this? A- absolutely. Surprisingly, I just did two last two separate deals last week that are along those lines that Clint just mentioned. So we do do that. Um, there will be parties that are personally liable um, for obvious reasons. Um, and, and we, of course, advise them to, to get with an attorney and really get a get a strong, good operating agreement because um, if something does happen. And the example I can use last week are there were a couple folks that were on the deed that, that were not personally liable. Well, they're having to sign the mortgage and, and pledge their property. So, so they needed to understand clearly what was basically at stake with them pledging their property for someone else to, to, to borrow the funds to pay for it. So we can certainly do it. We're very comfortable with these. We've seen a lot of them even even recently, um, but Clint's advice is, is very good. And I think what John's talking about, like if there's four of you, for example, and two of you are paying cash for your part and two of you are financing your portion, all four of you have got to sign on to the mortgage. That's right. You're, you're Because it's essentially your buddies, if it's a buddy or if it's a family member, is, is pledging your property to borrow funds. So that needs to be understood with clarity and, you know, know that if he stops paying, you can potentially lose your property that you paid cash for. That's, that's a big deal. I just wonder, can they work something into the operating agreement? Like Clint has to fill all the feeders. And (laughs) if I shoot a pig, Clint's got to go pick it up. If I shoot a deer, I'll pick it up. That kind of stuff. You joke about that, but that's probably what ends up getting these guys in fights stuff, stuff that easy, right? <laughs> I've seen the, the strangest arguments as much as I love hunting of all shapes and sizes of fishing, everything I've said on countless occasions that there is nothing that can take grown men and turn them into children faster than disagreements on the hows and whys of hunting, you know, with their best friends. And it's unfortunate to see, but it is amazing how often it happens. I've got this down in my, my list. You know, I don't know if y'all make like a list of things I'll do when I retire. Uh, one of the things I'm going to do is I'm literally going to write a book about the politics of a deer camp. Because <laughs> it, I mean, it, 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 it'd be a thousand pages with all the stories. I mean, it, it's unbelievable how quickly it, friendships can go south over a daggum pine goat. But I'll tell you what, though. It can. There, yeah, there's good stories. Let's just say you're in a big club with a bunch of different folks. And you and a buddy who have a good relationship say, you know what, let's look for 150 acres and it's more affordable than you think. And instead of having a thousand acres, you got 150, but it's yours. It's tangible. You can pass it on yeah. to your kids. So th- there, there is those success stories as well um, that, that I've seen this work out. That's yeah. what I was going to say as well. If you, what, you, what you find many times is in those group situations is the larger the group is you find that you find you're really your, your core group that you align with the most and you can kind of back out of, out of the lease or the club, whatever situation you're in and really go pursue that one where that's going to be almost like a family. I mean, it's going to be a true friendship and and really turn something into a trophy property that you might not have been able to do on your own. And I see that I manage about 40 hunting leases for private landowners every year. And I, I 
was actually talking to somebody this morning. We see, you know, six or eight of those type deals roll out every year where they just, they're tired of the lack of control of leasing and they're ready to buy. So they, they call me and say, all right, help us get started. How do, how do we do this? And that's, you know, we start basically hitting the same kind of bullet points that we're hitting here today, but it's, it's good to see when that happens. So that infamous phone call, do you do hunting leases? You can actually say yes. Well, that's that's kind of a loaded question because it <laughs> feels like about two thousand times a year, and uh, you know, I want to help everybody out, but at the same time, you know, I only got forty. <laughs> that sounds like a lot, but in the hunting lease world, it is not. Uh, you know, I know some of these asset managers, some of these uh, larger companies that manage, you know, two and three thousand leases every year, and I don't know how they do it, but they they do. So it's uh. But anyway, but yeah, you know, we do do leases. I have very little turnover for the record. I'd be happy to suggest other places to look if I can help you. One of the things I'm starting to see more, especially as we have, when we're in these good economic periods and everything's up, 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 up. Uh, one of the mistakes I'm seeing is people are building too much on their, their property. They're, they're trying to, they're doing too much. They're improving it too much with things that aren't necessarily adding value. So yeah. That's a big mistake I am starting to see. Clint, what's, what are you seeing? Do you see that a lot where a guy just builds too much cabin or too much lake? Or what yeah, do you see I, as the biggest one? I'd probably say the lodge, the camps are probably the most. Uh, I mean, lakes can get out of hand, but at the same time, as long as you're uh, on lakes, people misunderstand that surface acres equals cost, and it's, it has nothing to do with surface acres. I mean, it can, but most of the time, it's the dam is where your cost is. Mm-hmm. So if you don't spend too much in that trying to build that site, then you'll come out okay. Uh, on camps, uh, and also lakes are, or water features are more universal in terms of the market, in terms of people liking them. Camps are like houses. They're very specific. People may not like your colors or your layout or, you know, people are very picky when it comes to things like that many times. But the main problem we see is that, is that cost exceeds value. So you're in a rural community with not a lot of contractors. So labor and material cost is high. So let's say you spend 150 to $200 a square foot to build a nice lodge. Well, as soon as you finish, it is promptly worth $75 a square foot because of its location. And so if you don't have some value and use in that, or you don't own it long enough to have that appreciation factor kick in to recover some of that cost, you know, so if you try to do that and then sell it a year later, you're going to lose money on that. And, you know, that that's the case on my own personal family place. I mean, we, we did that, but we knew that going into it and we have no plans to sell it. So we're okay with that. But if you're not planning on keeping something long-term, you need to be very cost conscious on improvements, especially stick built improvements and, you know, understand how that works because just because you did something to it and it costs a lot of money, that does not equal value. And on another note, when I mentioned earlier that the market is gets these days because it's so internet focused, it's gotten very used to seeing, you know, land in the 18 to $2,300 an acre range in our area are places with camps in the 2,500 to 3,000 an acre range. If your cost of improvements makes you jump out of that bracket, um, you will have a harder time selling it just because people aren't used to seeing it and they immediately label it as overpriced. Doesn't mean it is, but that's their initial reaction. So it makes it harder to convince them to open that link or call you or whatever the case may be, call your agent 
to, to help sell it. So when you're, the more acres you have, the more you can spread the cost of that improvement over that acres acreage so that when people look it up, even though this logic doesn't really apply from a appraisal standpoint, uh, if you take your number of acres and divide it into the cost of your improvements, uh, it c- creates a per acre rate uh, and you add that to your cost basis and it kind of tells you, well, do I fall in the range of, a, of what properties like this normally sell for? And if you do, then you're okay. And again, that logic is crazy and, and shouldn't apply from an appraisal standpoint, but that's just the way we see it work in the market. But if you take that per acre rate of the cost of your improvements and it jacks it up a thousand dollars an acre, then you're going to have some trouble. And that we really see that on 100, 200 acre tracks that, you know, somebody builds a giant lake and a giant barn and a giant lodge. Well, their per acre cost is $6,000 an acre. Well, when the average ones are $3,000 an acre, we're going to have trouble moving it. I mean, we'll get it moved, but we're going to have some trouble compared to a normal, a normal track. It gets back to that filtering you're talking about too, Clint, and, and what we talked about earlier in the show of always looking at properties from a per price per acre basis. There's too many people that are always looking at it from a price per acre basis. And whether we like it or not, or whether they should or shouldn't, they do. And so when they set that filter online, you know, I'm not going to look at properties over $3,000 an acre because in their head that that's overpriced. So they'll never even see the property. It's not that they won't like it or uh, they just won't ever even see it. You're, you're fighting perception always. Yeah. So it's, it's again, whether it's right or wrong, that's just the world we live in. John, when it comes to uh, financing and, and building too much, uh, do you see that on y'all's end? And how, how does that factor into to the financing equation? Yeah, absolutely. Clint has obviously seen a lot of these because his numbers are, are dead on. A lot of folks, you know, their their cost per foot of building is is way above what our appraiser is going to come back at. And, you know, it's a unique piece of property with no comps around it. We understand that, but we can only get so high um, for those amenities. So I have definitely seen properties that um, have too many amenities have have a hard time getting done, you know, and so I I, I can't agree more with what he said in regards to that. I'll give you a current example. I mean, so we've got a property it's highly improved, beautiful. I mean, nobody would argue that it is amazing. And But the seller knew this going into it when he spent the money on his improvements, that he wasn't going to get it out, get, get his money out of it. It was strictly because he wanted to do it. But his cost in, in these are probably seven, $8 million. Uh, we had it appraised in the, in the sales process. You know, they came back at three and a half to four. So 50 cents on the dollar. And you know, so you, you've, you've just got to keep these kind of things in mind when you go in there, because again, people get really excited about this. And if this isn't going to be your forever property or your forever home, you better be thinking about it because again, we'll come back to, to haunt you if this is something that you plan on, on liquidating in a year or two. And that's the answer for us. Of course, we've got to consider risk. And so if we have to take this thing back, how easy is it for us to sell it? You know, how easy is it to get rid of? And if there's so many amenities and we put so much value on those amenities, it's, it's, it's difficult. But land, on the other hand, just, just raw land, timberland is, is not as hard or reasonable, a reasonably priced barn or cabin. Folks, folks want those things. Right. It's just that, that top of the line is, is where it becomes an issue. What I see is when you start getting over about three bedrooms um, is when we start getting into more harder to sell properties on, from a cabin standpoint. You know, two bedrooms, three bedrooms. 
you know, with kind of a dedicated master, that seems to be the sweet spot. When your dream is to shoot a deer while sitting on a floating raft in your swimming pool, that's when things start getting a little, <laughs> little hairy. That's that, well, and here's the deal is too, you can buy that 300 acres that has no improvements on it and we can do the construction. So that's what ends up happening is like, Hey, this is my forever place. This is where I want to have Thanksgivings with my, with my kids and so on and so forth. They don't want to buy your cabin. They want to build their cabin. So you, you run into that quite a bit as well. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's what I was saying on the subjectiveness of especially cabins. You know, there's a lot of water features. People aren't going to get as picky about the size or shape or dimensions of your lake. But when it comes to a cabin and you start involving spouses and family members, there's a lot of opinions that come into play. (laughs) I mean, we all see that on our regular homes, much less the hunting cabin. So you You get an opinion at your regular home. Uh, basically mine doesn't count. I'm right. Good. Tell you that. You still get to have it, but yeah. it's just, it's I over it here. Means, yeah. <laughs> kind of like my ownership interest in that other piece of property doesn't really mean anything. Right. But I'm there. Thanks uh, for your vote. Uh, yeah. No, go sit in the corner. Uh, that's right. So, uh, even my kids now just say, nope, they just go ask mom. So I'm not really sure. I'm just kind of the decorative opinion, but, um, but anyway, but it, you know, it's, it's again, I don't want to deter people from buying places or, or, building cabins or for the intent of selling it's just you know you won't you know just just be conscious of these things and um i think some people sometimes again they make assumptions they get too caught up in the moment and become emotional about it and you got to realize that the the hammered copper sink at the hunting camp probably is not the way to go uh if you don't plan on being there for more than a couple years you know clint you know i had this question uh come up this week and it was, this is another thing that I think is, it's a mistake. It's a mis, misconception uh, about buying land. And, and I always get the question of, do they have a survey? And sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Um, but I think it's widely thought that you have to have a survey to buy a piece of land and for the, for that to change. So John, on, on y'all's end, on the, on the, fin- from the financing end, can you finance a property without a, without a, new survey being done? Yes, ab- absolutely. Um, we do not always require a new survey. So as long as there's a, a valid legal description and the attorney can ensure that property, offer um, a lender's policy on that piece of property, we don't require one. So I always have that conversation and say, we don't know until we start doing title work and my appraiser starts looking at what the description says. But um, that is probably one of the bigger misconceptions for my first time land buyer folks that they think a hundred percent of the time um, we need a new survey. And me personally, this is just me. I'd say probably 25% of my deals have new surveys. So Clint, I would say that the majority of the time that I get that question, uh, it's coming from a residential, either realtor or sales professional that's mostly selling houses. What about you? Yeah, or either the first-time buyers that just don't understand, and and what what they're trying to say, and what what they don't realize it is is what John said. You have a clear, concise legal description. That is the requirement, and that is what a survey provides. But if you already have one, then you don't need the survey. Or if there's you know unmarked boundary lines and you know established boundaries aren't clear, it's some other reason to need a survey. But if the legal description is clear, then you know you don't need it. And we I probably have them. I see them in less than. 5% 5% of our deals. And, and most of the time, you know, especially with today's technology from an acreage standpoint, if somebody's concerned about that, uh, we can get within 
I mean, even they can get on their own within about 1% margin of error just using the GIS systems that are out there. So, you know, if you're paying $2,000 an acre and you're going to have a, your margin of error is, is a, let's just assume it's a $5,000 cost if, if it's on the negative side to you. But the survey to confirm that is going to cost $25,000, then you're not going to pay for a survey. Because uh, it's just not worth it, and that's typically the main reason we don't see one is is, is that the cost outweigh the benefit. Uh, I love having one, but it's just not always needed, you know. And I've got a great group of surveyors that I kind of, uh, I'd say, keep in my my land broker toolbox that we rely on heavily when we need one. But um, we just, as long as you've got well established boundary lines and a clear legal description, we just don't usually need them. Well, I, I took a shot at, at my residential agents and I love my residential agents. Don't get me wrong. I've got a lot of buddies that, that sell houses and, and do that. But I think that's one of the, also one of the mistakes that first time land buyers make is that they work with a residential agent to try to help them buy land. You see this, do you, what, how do you feel about that, Clint? And how do you feel about that, John? You want me to take it, Clint? <laughs> Y'all notice, y'all notice I backed out. I just asked the question. So I see, but I want to hear John first. (laughs) I see, I see both of them. And of course there's great value. Um, If you're buying land, you should be using a land professional. I mean, it's that simple. Um, Oftentimes the questions they're asking me, I can tell you who they're working with when they're asking me those questions because Clint's already handled those questions before they've gotten to me if they're using a land professional. So that would be what I, what I would say. And then from a residential perspective, from, from lending, what's going to happen is they're going to talk to three traditional lenders and then find out they're going to offer a five-year balloon where they could have talked to me on the front end. So it happens on, on, on both sides of the equation. And then as it relates to a survey, they, they, they don't, they don't know any better. I mean, they're, they're used to selling, selling homes. So, you know, that's, and I, the last thing I would say is the attorneys and, and Clint, I'm sure has a lot of attorneys down in his area that really focus on land and understand land. And as do we, so, you know, as do we have attorneys up here that do that. So to me, that that's the value um, in, in knowing that you're being led by someone who understands the real estate that you're purchasing. Yeah, I agree completely. And I mean, it's the same it falls right back on me when it comes to houses, you know, people that know me or like me or they like my negotiating style or whatever you want to call it and say, Hey, I don't like dealing with 15 residential realtors to go look at homes or beach houses or whatever in, in these markets. So can you handle that for me? And yes, technically I could, uh, because I have the license that's required to do that. Uh, should I, uh, that answer is rarely because I'm not an expert in that market that they want to buy in. So what I do for them is refer them to an expert, you know, somebody that's my equivalent in that market. And, and that's the way that I represent them properly. And as a realtor, if you see an agent with that R behind their name, which I am uh, as, as part of the a member and, and of the Realtors Land Institute and an accredited land consultant, we all adhere to a code of ethics. And part of that code of ethics states that if we're not an expert in that field, that we understand and agree that we should back out uh, of that transaction because we're not properly representing our client. And a lot of these uh, agents don't remember that part of the code. And, you know, and what it comes down to is, is just properly representing people. 
So if you're not an expert in that field and they need you to be, or they've asked you to be, then tell them that and find them the person that is. And that's how you represent them properly is getting them to a land professional in our business or me to, a, if I'm referring them to a commercial professional or a residential professional, because that's not my specialty. That's not my niche. I own those type of properties, but I don't feel confident enough to represent people most of the time, you know, so it's just about understanding, you know, what's best for your clients and, and protecting them, not just about making a commission or chasing a dollar. You know, we're all in business to make money, but you know, you represent people poorly one or two times, you can, you can go out of business very quickly. So, I, you know, I, I try to think first and foremost about the ethics of the situation, not just, just a commission and, and try to do what's right and, and I offer those, you know, when we run into this with residential agents and I can tell that they're struggling, you know, they can't show the property because they drive a Toyota Camry and they need to go show a hundred acres of timberland or, or, you know, this, those aren't extreme examples. I had that last week, you know, I had to push a lady out of the sand six months ago because she couldn't, after promising me she could show the property, she couldn't. And I, I was just happened to be there anyway, out of support. And she got stuck within five minutes of being there you know, couldn't properly identify pine trees, things like that, you know, that we run into constantly. And, you know, so when I hear those things or I feel like that situation is coming, I I try to just have honest conversations with them and say, look, you know, it's obvious this is not your specialty. Can I, can I offer you uh, a referral opportunity or things like that where we can, you know, make sure that your folks are in good hands. And sometimes that may not even be a referral to me. It may be to somebody else in our company on our team or, or, you know, it's not always about, me or me as the agent, you know, I, I want, we want to focus and make sure that we're taking care of, of people on both ends. So they're making informed decisions and don't look back on it later poorly. You know, they want to feel like they had a, all the facts and, and were able to make a, a good educated decision on their, on their land investment. Not everything in life is, is about making as much money as you can off of the quote unquote prospects that walk in your door. And that's the biggest thing is that you're able to step in and do what's right for the the person and, and well, I, make the, make the decision, you know, to give that, to hand that business off or to uh, refer them to someone else because that's what they need. Right. And I, you know, people say to us all the time, well, you're a really good salesman. That's why you're successful in this. And that's, I rarely sell in the way that I think of as a, as a salesman. It's more about problem solving for people. So, they, their problem is that they want to buy this kind of land in this area with this type of improvement or, or age class of timber or whatever the case may be, uh, or they're selling because they've got a tax implications or estate implications or somebody died or there's a conflict, or somebody went to jail or whatever the thing you could dream of after 16 plus years in this, I think I've about run into all of them by now. We are solving that problem. We are not selling something. And as long as you represent and help people and solve that problem, the business will come, you know, so that's what we focus on first and foremost. So Clint, with regards to first time land buyers in your experience, how many times do you see that the first time land buyer gets the property they've, they've dreamed of and they're just totally happy with it and they stay with that one for the rest of their life? Uh, short answers rarely, but it usually depends on their age and, and where they are. But if it, if you're, a younger person it's rare because especially on the first time land buyer, because they, again, <laughs> I guess my, my go-to word, this, this go around, but they made assumptions about what they wanted or didn't want or didn't need it or didn't need. And they come to find out quickly 
or, you know, within a year or two that I was wrong. So now it's time to, it doesn't mean it was a bad piece of property. It just didn't, just wasn't the one for them. So now we, they call me and we start working on opportunities and vehicles to move them forward into the next piece. Yeah. I, I would say I see the same thing. I was on a track yesterday. It's 235 acres, beautiful properties, got great hunting, good timber, nice cabin. I mean, it's, it's somebody's dream property, but the current owners, they just don't go there very much. They thought they would use it a lot. They thought it was going to be a, a place that, that they'd get together and they're not doing that. And so they're, they're going to sell it. Absolutely nothing wrong with it. It's just, uh, they thought they were going to use it one way and, and now they're going to pivot into something else. So John, on your end, how many times do you see that someone comes in and gets a loan from you guys to, to buy their first piece of land and that's the last loan they ever get from you? <laughs> not, not very often. That's the beauty of doing business with us. I've mentioned that before is, um, we're in it for the long haul. We want to continue to, to work with you. So oftentimes they come in, buy a smaller track and, and get used to this. And then they, they do a 1031 or they sell it and, and we're there for the next one. So it's very frequent that they're going to be buying and selling and then we'll be continuing to work with them. Well, since you brought it up, tell me a little bit about how y'all can get involved. Because I think, you know, along with making the mistake of thinking that they've got to get their dream property the first go round, I think it puts a lot of people on the sidelines and they don't really learn what they don't know. But I, another mistake I see a lot of people making is with not understanding the tax implications of buying and selling land. You know, I mean, just a, a, as an example, not a first time land buyer, but a first time land owner uh, out of uh, a uh, person who inherited some land the other day and um, and they were not un- under the understanding that by getting that land appraised, they were able to establish their basis in the property. And that would have had far reaching negative tax implications for them had they not established that, that basis in the property. But since you brought up the 1031, how, how do you guys get involved in that? Well, Typically, the first phone call is, hey, I'm thinking about selling, kind of where are we at, what's my balance, what's my payoff, and so we'll have that conversation. Then oftentimes, you know, if I'm doing my job, I'm I'm asking them what they're looking to do and what they're wanting to do, and so we, of course, work with a a few intermediaries in our area that uh, can help with 1031s, and so I'll, I'll put them in touch with the professionals and not get overly involved, but, you know, I'll help them by by getting them ready to sell this property. And then if they need some more financing because they're buying a bigger place on the next side, we'll, we'll get that rolling as well. Yeah. A lot of people don't understand with 1031s that you've got to roll forward the same amount of debt that you entered the exchange with. And if you don't, it's considered the same thing as take with money out of the exchange. You're going to pay taxes on that. I mean, debt relief is the same thing as cash proceeds in the IRS's uh, purview. So uh, if you don't understand that, you think I'm just going to pay off this loan and 1031 the balance, then you're going to get stuck with a pretty good tax bill that you didn't realize you were going to have. And I think that gets back to what you were saying earlier, John, is that's just so important to have a relationship that, that you can pick up a phone and ask questions and say, here's what we're thinking about doing, being, you know, being honest. Here's what we're thinking about doing and let you guys look at it. Uh, uh, from a from the bigger picture and say, well, here are the implications of that decision. Yeah, and even I'll tell you one of the things I learned back when I was a land agent is to tell them, you know what, I don't know the answer. Let me pick up the phone and call someone who does. And I think that, you know, that's one of the most important things that, that we do over here is I don't, I don't know every answer. I've not seen every deal. 
Um, so to be able to call us, have that conversation, really we're called relationship managers that way we have a relationship, you know, so uh, we pride ourselves in that. You know, one of the last things I think I see people make a mistake is when they buy their land, they are not getting liability insurance. Do you guys require it, John, on, on properties that, that you have financed? No, we're going to require hazard insurance on structures that um, were valued in the appraisal. So if you have a cabin that has some value, we're going to require that. Based upon loan to value, it can be waived as well. I waived one last week because we didn't need it for the loan to value. One thing to think about as well is flood. If if the property is mortgage and there's a structure in the flood, the federal government requires flood insurance. So um, no, we're not going to require liability insurance on a timber track, but that's something good to, to consider when you're when you're buying land. Clint, do you guys require it on the properties that you lease? Yep. And that indemnifies the lessees, lessor, and any agents involved. It's just, and it's just so cost effective these days. I mean, it, it doesn't make much sense not to have it. It's super inexpensive and, and you know, it's peace of mind. And I, I highly recommend um, QDMA, uh, Quality Deer Management Association, has a liability insurance that you can get through them. Uh, you become a member, you know, if you're interested in, in growing whitetail deer uh, and, and having quality deer on your property, the QDMA leads the, you know, they're the thought leaders uh, when it comes to that. But they also offer uh, liability insurance and it's through outdoor underwriters. It's very inexpensive. And we did a show on it. In fact, you can go back and listen to that. But there's a multitude of reasons I won't get into. But that's a huge mistake, in my opinion. It's so cheap. You know, it'd, it'd be like not getting flood insurance in a flood zone. It's it's a cheap thing that is peace of mind, and when it when you need it, you need it big time. Well, one good reason is if you ever take Joe hunting because I've seen him shoot. So you definitely <laughs> have insurance before he gets there. Absolutely, yeah, hundred percent. If you're bringing me on your property, well, John, it's it's uh, it's been good having you on the show today, man. I sure appreciate you coming on and and giving us the. Uh, the financiers, the lenders perspective on, on, uh, you know, that, that's one thing I got to stop for a second. You know, when you're, when you go to business school, it's finance, by the way, it's uh, very important that you use the word finance, not finance, like we say in <laughs> South Alabama finance. So, uh, it's always good to have a financier's perspective on, uh, on these first time land buyer mistakes. And, um, I think we've covered a lot of ground today. We sure, sure enjoyed having y'all. Uh, I appreciate being on here. Thank, thanks for having me. Um, I learned a lot, so I'm not, I guess I'm not a first-time land buyer, but I enjoyed listening to you guys talk. Well, if folks want to get in touch with you uh, there at the Montgomery office or, or look you up online, what's the best way for them to do it? Yeah, so the first place I'd start is alabamaagcredit.com, alabamaagcredit.com. You can go on there, have all of our branch locations, um, you know, find a lender in your market that you're wanting to call or you can get me direct at 334-312-0507. Ooh, it's a lot, Clint. It's a lot of stuff. It is. We've, when we've only scratched the surface. I know. Let's get into a few. I want to go back to a few things. Okay. I said something earlier, you know, I, I do think it's a mistake to overanalyze and, and feel like you've got to find your perfect property and sit on the, sit on the sidelines and not not ever even get started because we've seen so many times that people think they want one thing. And then once they get it, they realize that was a little too much or, or not enough. You echoed that, you know, you bought, you started with 10 acres and now you, you've got a lot more than that. Now you didn't start, you know, out with 
hundreds of acres. And so I do think it's a mistake in some scenarios to put, put your dream property up on a pedestal and then just not do anything until you get that. Flip side of that though, is that it's not wrong to look for your dream property, but that's just, your dream property is not necessarily on the market right now. You know, just because you want it doesn't mean it's for sale. And one of the mistakes I see is that people don't realize that not every transaction that occurs in land hits the market. Talk a little bit about our TAP program, because I think most people don't even realize this this exists. Well, I would say probably 30% of my business, plus or minus every year, is is off-market transactions. And, you know, sometimes that's clients that are just want to buy the land next to them and they've just never been successful doing it on their own or they just don't even want to attempt it because they don't want to accidentally burn any bridges. So they put me in charge of that and they just throw me under the bus and let me, <laughs> let me do that for them. Uh, so, um, you know, so we do do a lot of that, but in terms of somebody looking for just something really unique and uh, that's not on the market and unlikely to be in the near future, uh, we've got the TAP program where you, somebody tells us what they want. I mean, we, we can help them and give them some input but really we look to them to give us as much criterion as possible about what they want. And then we can actually take that to our GIS team and create uh, a very highly specific search for them. Uh, We own all the parcel data uh, in every market we serve on top of other, I try not to butcher this too bad, but other layers and features and data related to that parcel information where we can basically filter out tracks that have, the features that they want, whether it be proximity to a school or sewer or Walmart or water features or river frontage, whatever the case may be, what falls out of this highly specific search is what they want. And we tend to be at a 90 to 95% accuracy. The more specific the client is with us, the higher that uh, percentage of accuracy is. We have this full list of tracks that we then, there may be a hundred tracks that fit what they told us and we'll have a mapped out. They walk through it with us, say, I definitely don't like these five over here. So we'll get those off the list immediately. But after we do that second filter, then we reach out to those landowners on our client's behalf and just see, Hey, we've got this person that's looking for tracks like yours. Would you be willing to sell? And if they are great, we move forward, we explore it. And if we're able to meet on terms, we close. Uh, and, and, Many times you have an opportunity to buy something that fits exactly what you want that never came to market. So you didn't have to face that high level of competition, you know, things like that, that, that happen when a property comes to the open market and people love it. I mean, our clients that have done it absolutely love it. They, they save money many times on purchase price, but, you know, really what they're most happy with is that they got what they wanted quicker. It's not always a pricing issue. It's that they, we, solve that problem. We achieve their goals quickly. Right. And that's really what I wanted to make sure I, I made a point of is that I'm not saying to settle when I say, you know, don't, don't wait on your dream track. I'm not saying to settle. I'm just saying you got to get started somehow and learn what it is. You got, you don't know what you don't know. And the TAP program though, for those that, that are looking for something specific is a, unbelievable resource. I'm, I still can't believe this. You're talking about referring people to the experts. Our GIS team is unbelievable with regards to what they, I still can't believe, you know, I mean, they, we can find, if you want an irrigation pivot with 
you know, and it's only, you know, whatever it is, they can, they can drill down and find it. So the last one we did was a thousand acres on a river. If it wasn't on the river, he wanted a water feature inside a certain area of the state with good access and good soils. So we put that together as a site index of, you know, X number or higher, our NCCPI number, which is your farm ground rating. We scored tracks based off of that. Uh, they had to have frontage on a public road, access to utilities, and water frontage or water feature. And we had over 100 tracks fall out within the polygon of the state that we, we designed for him. Every one of them fit his needs. I mean, that's a good problem to have. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, it, but then, you know, not all those tracks are for sale and not all those tracks can be purchased. That's right. And so that's where we come in and, yep. uh, and get involved and, and find out which ones can be purchased and, and go from there. Yeah. What else did you see, man? What, what are you seeing mistakes wise that people are making? Uh, what do we miss? A lot of people don't understand. They've heard of 1031 exchanges and know the basics, but they don't understand that you can exchange out of rental properties or other investment real estate that isn't land and 1031 into land, or they don't realize that you can use that as those, those proceeds as your down payment with the bank. You know, so we have a lot of people that before they talk to us, they've could have exchanged, they've, you know, they sold a rental house or 10 rental houses or a condo or beach house, whatever the case may be some form of investment real estate and they've already closed on that and taken the cash and they're going to pay taxes on that and then come to us and try to buy land where if they'd have reached out beforehand, we could have explained to them that, you know, you need to talk to your attorney, you need to talk to your accountant, but you can exchange those proceeds if done properly into land uh, and avoid or defer, I should say that, that tax bill. And, you know, the other thing that we, I see even more of, especially in regards to timberland is people don't understand that when you buy something that has uh, timber on it, whether it be pre-merchable or merchantable timber, you have a timber basis at closing. Uh, it works a little differently when you 1031 into it, but you st- either way, you still have a basis in that timber and you can deplete that. So a very easy example, if you buy something for $2,000 an acre, cash or, or mortgage without a 1031 uh, and it's got a thousand dollars an acre in the dirt and a thousand dollars an acre in timber the day you buy it that you could take a thousand dollars an acre in timber income off of that uh, without having to pay taxes on it and again it depends on how you got here and, and double check everything with your accountant and attorneys but that's the way it works and a lot of people think that that thousand dollars an acre in, in timber income uh, is subject to taxation and it's not because you haven't made a profit now the thousand and first dollar after that, yes, you would pay the applicable tax rate on that, which is typically long-term capital gains rate, which is cheaper than what you would pay on rental property income, which is ordinary income tax rates. Which, if you're a top earner, that's a seventeen percent difference in savings on timber income tax liability versus rental income tax liability. Uh, so again, this gets, it's not complicated, but it's complicated if you've never dealt with it and it's, it's easier to understand in black and white, but there's a lot of strengths and opportunity in land investments that people don't think about or don't think to ask before they get here. Clint, what about closing, you know, closing on that property? What about, you know, what about legal access? What do you see people making mistakes when it comes to access in their property or, or not access in their property? 
Well, on the title side, uh, John mentioned this, you know, the, the closing company or the title company you use is important. And when times are good right now, especially, you know, it seems to be in coastal areas, there's these title companies just popping up left and right. And, and they may do fine in, in that sector, but when it comes to land and rural settings, you know, things can get a little bit more complicated in, in doing title research uh, for somebody that doesn't have experience in it. So you want to make sure you're dealing with a title company um, that isn't just the cheapest. You know, cheap is great, but it's all about value. So it's not just about cheap because many times it's just like land. You, you can get a cheap piece of land, but you're going to get what you paid for. So understanding the value in that in that investment of your closing cost or your owner's policy is important. So you want to deal with a good, reputable company that's got a history in land. On the access standpoint, you know, having deeded access or legal access has gotten to become more of a hot button issue through the years than it used to be. And it's important, but it's not always necessary. And, you know, don't be too scared to look at something that doesn't have legal access that may have good physical access and a good historical use track record. I own tracks that don't have deeded access. I have finance tracks that don't have deeded access. I know how to finance tracks that don't have deeded access. You know, if you go to a track and it's got one gate that everybody uses and they've been using that road for a hundred years and that's why it doesn't have deeded access because it's just too complicated. It don't, I, you know, from a personal standpoint, I don't worry about it that much. If I go into a track and I'm going through five or six gates, you know, I got to have different keys for each. They all got giant, those trespassing signs or, you know, all the crazy signs that I've seen through the years in the woods. Yeah. You know, you start seeing those red flags, you should be concerned about that one. Uh, do some more due diligence. Make sure you understand the history there and what problems you might run into. Because even deeded access can have problems if you've got, you know, bad neighbors or strong personalities around you. So you just you just want to make sure that you understand, you know, what what you're dealing with and not just make assumptions, good or bad, either way, because it does or does not have deeded access. I think that if there's a theme to this show besides, you know, the title, it's making assumptions is probably the <laughs> biggest mistake because uh, it, it is, it just goes without, and I don't think you need further detail on it, but ultimately talk to people who are doing this every day, give them a call, explain your unique situation and, and let them help you because you just, you don't know what you don't know. and if you're making assumptions, you may be missing big opportunities and setting yourself up for some, some heartache in the future. Yeah. Be clear, be honest, you know, be, be upfront about your lack of experience in it and, or your lack of, of understanding, not sure exactly what your goals are, then, then say that too. Cause many times you can get out and look at a few tracks and your goals start to take shape and you start to realize what you don't like or don't need or do like, or do need, you know, if you're doing this for investment for income, then understand with timber, using timber as an example, understand when you need that income. So if you don't need it until your kids go to college at 18 and your kid's one year old, then, you know, consider buying more acreage with young timber that may not be quite as aesthetically pleasing right now, but you'll be able to buy more acreage. It's going to grow more timber. And by the time it's 18 years old and he's going to college, she's he or she's going to college, then it'll make you more money. Uh, with less outlay up front. And, you know, if you don't think about it that that way, then again, you'd be one of those people that jumped into something. Even if they didn't do it quickly, they just didn't think and analyze it properly and again, made assumptions. And then they're, they're kind of 
not stuck with it, but they're stuck with it for that period of time until they're able to liquidate it and move on to the right one. Well, if you're in the land market for the first time, there's no doubt right now is a good time. Uh, interest rates are his- historically very low and it- it's it's a good time. Well, Clint, we've been on here long enough, man. I got to get out and start trying to sell some land. You got any, uh, you got any listings coming up that hadn't hit the market yet that folks want to, should want to know about? Yeah, I've got a beautiful old farm mixed hardwood track coming up with a um, New Orleans themed design home on it that, that's going to be priced aggressively. Uh, we're getting the timber cruise on it right now. It was so old and so diverse that I, you know, I didn't feel comfortable pricing it without a cruise. So that's coming. It's got some pasture on it. Uh, and then on Friday, I'm, I've not seen it yet, but I'm actually going to look at another track. It's a few hundred acres with a, a cabin on it that they're describing to me as a luxury tree house. So I'm kind of looking forward to seeing that one. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I've got a uh, got a pretty good one coming up uh, down in Walton County, Florida. Uh, it's going to be 235 acres. That property is, I was on it yesterday, actually. Uh, really beautiful property. It's got good, well-stocked timber, good, you know, uneven aged stands uh, within the property. Lots of wildlife. I saw deer and turkeys while I was there. It's a beautiful track. Got a bunch of bunch of stands already in place, bunch of feeders already in place, a really nice uh, four bedroom, two bath cabin on it with a, with a uh, garage covered pavilion. I mean, it's going to be a, a really awesome place and it's only about 15 minutes from Defuniac Springs, Florida, about 45 minutes from uh, the beaches of South Walton. So a really cool place. Uh, if somebody's in the market, uh, that one ought to be hitting the market later this week, I would imagine. Um, so anyway, folks, as always, we certainly appreciate you guys listening. Hope you learned something today. If you've got any questions about some of the things we talked about, just email us over at pros at landhunting.com. And if you want us to uh, email you the show each week, you can send us an email and we'll sign you up there as well. You guys stay safe out there. We'll talk to you again soon. This week's show has been brought to you by Joe Baia and Clint Flowers, members of the top producing team at National Land Realty, the fastest growing and most innovative land brokerage in the nation. Bottom line, we know land, and now is a great time to buy or sell. Want to know why? Shoot us an email at pros at or call us at 855-NLR-LAND.